Bienvenue to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about our institutions, why they're failing, and ways that we can fix them. My name is James Wallner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I guess this is our Bastille Day week special. Right. So our listeners, we don't usually open with French, but I'm going to say it again because I'm very proud of myself. Bienvenue. And our illustrious co-host, Julia, is in Paris right now on vacation. Although she could be in Paris, uh, Texas or somewhere else. But I just assumed she was in France. Paris, France. Um, if not... Well, yeah, there. So it works. Anyway, you know, but still days coming up. And it's a great, I think, uh, reminder that sometimes a bunch of crap happens when people get really upset. And in politics, when things don't go well, the people, generally speaking, have recourse to, to try to change things. Hopefully not with, you know, sacking uh, government buildings and things like that. And we'll talk about that today as well on these shores. But it is an interesting reminder that. If the system doesn't work the way that the people want it to work, Lee, the, the people can change it. They can change it by electing new representatives. They can change it by a whole host of other things. And yes, they can change it by a revolution, which is how we got started in this business in the first place. And so in today's episode, Lee and I are going to talk about kind of what's happening in our politics right now. Why is everybody so pissed off? And then we're going to talk a little bit about why it's happening, which it, it may be a little counterintuitive. And then lastly, I think we're going to try to close with what we can do about it. And by we, I mean the people, what you can do about it, whether or not you are a conservative or a liberal, a Democrat, a Republican, or anything in between, the same lessons apply to all of us. This is uh, our nation. We are both uh, rulers and ruled. We are the ones who call the shots here. So what can we do about this? And, And why is it that we keep getting more and more frustrated and upset and angry? Yet nothing ever seems to change. Lee, how does that sound? Uh, well, I am pissed off that you that you talked for so long. Let's let's fight it out. We got a lot of problems. We got we got problems. We got problems. But but I mean, it's something about summer too, right? I mean, the you know July Fourth of July, Bastille Day protests. Big protests always happen in summer. Black Lives Matter protests were in the summer. It's counterintuitive. Because I grew up in the South. I grew up in the deep South. Sorry to interrupt. And the humidity, especially this past week down there, has been like almost 100%. And when you, in 100% humidity, if you just stand in the shade, you're going to be drenched. That's why nobody protests in the South. So why, why, why are people taking to the streets in the summer? It seems like the last time you should take to the streets. Well, no, but everybody's pissed off. You know, like, like the heat just makes us angry and cranky and, and like gun violence goes up. Our producer Shannon was was noting when we were thinking about this episode. It's just people are in a cranky mood. So is it just the summer or is it something else? I mean, we've got this Dobbs decision on abortion, and now Democrats are, are really angry. Well, here, how about this? Why don't you set the table for us? Kind of what are the main issues right now? What's happening right now that that seems to be upsetting everyone. Well, I'll tell you what's happening in my world of my Democratic friends. Everybody feels like this is like the first time rights have actually been taken away from people with the Stobbs decision. They feel angry that Biden's not meeting the moment. Feels angry about the frustrated that that we can't do anything about 
guns, climate keeps getting worse, inflation seems out of control. Everything just, everybody feels like, I think, just powerless and feels like, you know, things are spiraling just in this direction towards darkness. There's the sense that we're not going to have a legitimate election in 2024, that democracy is dying. And yet, you know, I mean, the interesting thing is when I talk to a lot of people, say, oh, catch up, you know, everybody says, oh, well, you know, personally, I'm doing fine. But oh, my God, things are going to hell in this country. What are your conversations like? Well, I think you're, I mean, and I want to get to a little bit of to what extent this anger is real or to what extent it is a, um, a manifestation of political elites and the things that they're doing in advance of elections, which I think it can be a little of both. But yeah, we have these school shootings, which are horrific, regardless of what your view on gun policy is. These things are, uh, they're absolutely terrible. We have, we have shootings that aren't at schools. We have uh, people dying. We have the abortion decision. It can, it either makes somebody very happy on one side or it makes somebody very happy, not very happy on the other side. But we have January 6th, both the event itself and then the follow-on effects that kind of come from the January 6th committee and looking into it and investigating it and trying to get to the bottom of what happened. We have inflation. We have a whole host of things. But I think one the common thread that runs through all of this, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, what your political disposition is, is a sense of helplessness and a sense of powerlessness that people feel like, it seems to me, that things are happening in this country, in this nation, and they're happening to us, not because of us. And even with regard to the, if you take the kind of Republican or conservative pro-life view of the Dobbs decision, it's something like, woohoo, finally, the court, like that's the kind of general position that prevails on the right. The court made the right call, but it's still the court made the call, not me, not us activists, not us lawmakers, not us whomever. It's that these other people agreed with me. So there's a sense of political agency does no, no longer exist in most people. They feel like things are happening to them, not because of them. Is that the general sense that you get as well? Yeah, it is. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about. And I think a lot of it stems from our, our sort of the folk theory of how democracy works in this country, you know, which is that we vote in elections and then elections are these mandates and then parties are supposed to do things and and then we just root for our team and turn out. But like politics, a lot of politics happens in between elections. And I, I think one of the things that's really changed in our democracy over the last several decades is the extent to which so much of advocacy and politics has become professionalized and nationalized in a way that everybody feels powerless. And these two great parties that are constantly fighting each other like these tired boxers in a ring who just keep punching and everybody thinks that they're going to get, you know, their side is finally going to get knocked out, but they're like energizer robots that just keep going and going and going. But like, we're all just spectators in that fight because we've been told that democracy is only about elections and everything comes down to elections. And we ignore local politics. We ignore state politics to some extent. And we're just obsessed all the time on these battles in Washington. I agree. But I want to try to put it in sharper relief here, cast it in sharper relief. When we think about 
all of these things that's, that are upsetting us, like guns and shootings, uh, the Dobbs decision, the January 6 events, inflation, whatever it may be. And I'm, we're missing a lot of that, I'm sure. It seems like that, again, there are things that are happening to us. And, and you highlighted in a very good way the, the nature of elections. And it brings to my mind a question, which is, you know, is this anger real? Am I really angry? Or are the events, setting aside, you know, some of the school shootings and things like that, are these events, is this other, is this thing that I am upset about, this person or this force, is it real or is it manufactured? Or is it a little bit of both? If I think about it right now, heading into a midterm election, how do you win? How do the Democrats, for instance, win a midterm election? And I think these themes are equally applicable to both sides. You've seen this with conservatives. They get very excited. They have these great change elections. And then it's like, eh, it's kind of this, the status quo keeps you know petering on. And then you get a lot of upset and disillusioned voters. You see that right now. We come from the 2018 AOC uh, victory and this sense of like, well, you know, finally progressives are going to have their moment again in the sun. And then it's like now it's like the rise of the moderates and mansion and cinema. How do Democrats navigate these tensions within their party heading into this midterm elections or in Republicans? I mean, okay, so Republicans... You know, it's a politics of fear, right? It's, you know, if Democrats take over, they're going to destroy. So stop there. Right. So let's just stop there. Like, boom, politics of fear. So the question is, to what extent does the language we use, the the posturing that our elected officials uh, engage in, in advance of elections, or pretty much all the time now, to what extent does that create the impression that the world is something about which we should all be upset and furious and angry? Right. Of course it does. I just wanted to hear you agree with me. That's all. I agree with you. I mean, and Democrats, you know, people should be angry, right? I mean, the Dobbs decision is like a gift to Democrats' chances in the midterms because now Democrats have something to get their voters to be angry about. Like, that's how you mobilize voters through anger and fear. Now, the, of course, this is fundamentally, I think, a problem of the way that our party system is organized right now, because the Democratic coalition is fracturing, Republican coalition is fracturing. But what do the Democrats all have in common? They're angry at Republicans. They don't want Republicans to get into office. They think Republicans are extreme and radical and illiberal. What do Republicans have in common? Not a lot, but Democrats would be terrible for the country if Democrats are in charge. And by the way, they are in charge. But if they're still in charge and, you know, then they're going to pass these radical things. Mitch McConnell said, you know, we, we don't have an agenda other than to stop Biden. Right. I mean, right. And I mean, and that's perfectly legitimate of them. And if the voters don't like it, then they can certainly hold them accountable. Right. I mean, I think it's OK to have opposition. Can they? Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Which voters are holding who accountable? Well, it doesn't. It's not about which voters. It's like people. If you say... I don't want the president to do something. It's fine. It may not be a okay. good idea or a bad idea, but it's perfectly legitimate in our society for us to say that we don't want anything to happen or we do want stuff to happen. And then the, the people who vote in our elections can then decide if they want to hold the Mitch McConnell accountable or not. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I mean, who, who's holding Mitch? I mean, we have a handful of states that are even competitive in which most people have already made up their mind. We have this myth of accountability that voters are somehow outside the system and holding politicians and parties accountable when one, most voters 
are in places where their vote doesn't matter because most states and most districts are lopsided. And two, even in those places where races are competitive, most voters are so partisan that they would never even consider voting for the other party. So you have this very tiny sliver of voters who are, you know, the ones who are supposedly holding people accountable. And, you know, it's mostly low information voters who just want to throw, constantly throw the bums out and are never happy and are, you know, just feel like all of politics is broken. Right. Well, in, we see this in, in research about the solid South when it was in Democratic control for decades and decades and decades. When you have a one party system in a state, then historically the competition has occurred within the party, not between the parties. There's still options. Well, but it's not happening. But the point is this. It's the presumption that there should be an outcome, that there should be something that is done. When that distracts us from this idea of the activity that's taking place within places like Congress. But setting aside that, I want to, so we have elections and we ask people, you know, people are upset and they're like, well, why, why, why is all this happening? You're like polarization, partisanship, competition, right? All this other stuff, the other side, we can't let them win. But all of these things suggest that we would see different events in between elections. Throughout American history, people have been extraordinarily pissed off at certain points in time. And those points in time have also, I think, just thinking back off the top of my head, uh, corresponded to moments of great political change within government. But yet today, it seems like our elected officials, we're all upset, the people we vote for then go and they don't do anything. They literally, like, you know, it's like, well, the Democrats are going to win. If they win, the Republic's going to fall into the ocean. And then they win. And look, I mean, look, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm a conservative. I'm a conservative Republican. And I don't, I mean, nothing's really happened under Biden. It, and I don't say that as like a, an electoral like way to win office or anything like that. It's just, it's kind of like, eh. And if you look at Trump, this isn't like the Great Society. This isn't the New Deal. This isn't the fair deal or anything else in between. This isn't Reagan's revolution or anything else, right? We're, we're tinkering at the edges. And I don't want to minimize the significance of a lot of the things that are happening, but the consequences of the active decisions that lawmakers are making that would not otherwise be made, I think, don't seem that high. I mean, we can talk about the court. That's a different issue. Maybe it's the, will anybody finally make a deal deal? I mean, does it matter if who's in control? I mean, like the gun bill that just passed, it seems to be like the lowest common denominator, least significant thing that you possibly could find. Now, some people say, wow, it's huge that we were able to do that. Right. But it, it, I mean, I agree. It's, it's a nothing burger that is, that will make no difference probably. I mean, in 2000 years, nobody's going to remember that. Well, but we'll all be dead in 2000. Well, yeah, but like the 19, you ask a room full of people about the 1957 Civil Rights Act and they don't, most people have never heard of it. And then you ask them about the 64 Civil Rights Act and everybody, or at least most people have heard of it. And then I think that though then draws our attention to what should be happening. If everybody's so angry, then they should be fighting more. There should be more political conflict and disagreement and people should be trying to win. And when they do those things, like they did in the 60s, you end up getting big, marquee pieces of legislation. Why? Because compromise emerges out of the struggle, right? Right, right. So people should be out in the streets. They should be organizing. They should be demonstrating, you know? So isn't that good? People are harassing Supreme Court justices and, you know, that's good, right? No, I mean, let's look at it this way. The 60s was probably the period of Congress's greatest legislative productivity in this nation's history. And, you know, and this isn't me saying, oh, it's all good or all bad. I mean, that's not my point here. 
the point is, though, and everybody was in the streets. Everybody was upset. Conservatives, liberals, moderates, everybody in between. People were getting up in the morning. They were marching. They were agitating. They were doing bad things, good things, everything in between. But they were trying to change the world. There was a sense that they were empowered, even if they didn't have a lot of power, like certain groups in our society. And they're like, damn it, we're going to get power and we're going to march and we're going to engage in activism and we're going to start new periodicals and we're going to start new information organs and we're going to start new groups and we're going to engage in new uh, procedural activities within Congress and we're going to filibuster more and we're going to try to break more filibusters. And out of all of this stuff that's happening, you get the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. You get the um, clean water, clean air stuff. You get like all the new departments and agencies in the government, all kinds of stuff. We deregulated the airlines, right? And this is like what was happening. Cities were on fire. There was huge amounts of unrest. The president was in the process of being kicked out of office. The vice president was in the process of getting kicked out of office. People are going to jail, right? Everybody's upset. But yet we still, the system worked. It worked for the people. Why? Because the people were engaged in and demanded that it work. What's the difference between now and then? Well, difference between now and then is that the party system was essentially orthogonal to the societal conflict. You had liberals in the Republican Party who were pro-civil rights. You had conservatives in the Republican Party who were anti-civil rights. You had liberals in the Democratic Party who were against the Vietnam War. You had conservatives in the Democratic Party who were for the war. So that there were fights happening about the important issues within and across the parties. Now, partisanship is controlling everything. And maybe there are latent conflicts within the parties that could be unleashed, but the stakes feel too high over which party controls. Nobody cared whether, you know, it wasn't such a big deal whether... Democrats won the White House or Republicans won the White House, except, of course, when Barry Goldwater was contesting the White House and was seen as extreme. But at, at, a, at an individual congressional district and at a state and a Senate level, people were voting for the candidate, not for the party. And so there was much more play within the joints of the system then. What's happened now is that everything becomes a partisan issue. As soon as, as soon as an issue becomes a national controversy, the parties have to take sides and the parties have to take competing sides. And because the balance of power is, is so equally distributed, they have to fight each other. Also, in the 1960s, Democrats had overwhelming majorities in both the House and the Senate. So control of Congress wasn't at stake. So I think there's a lot different between now and then. But I do agree that you force politicians to respond to things by demonstrating, by taking action in the streets. And, you know, I, I hope people get out there and spend the summer protesting if they're unhappy. I mean, we saw this already with the Black Lives Matter movement. That changed the conversation uh, around policing, I think, for a little while. And then, of course, there's, there's been somewhat of a, of a backlash to that. But, you know, it, it did kind of surface that issue. So I think maybe maybe we will see a summer of women's rights protests. Maybe we'll see a summer of anti-gun violence protests. I'm sure we will see some disastrous climate events and maybe we'll see some protests demanding action on climate. I hope we do. So what's interesting, I mean, it, it needs to be more than a summer if you want to have change because change is hard. Sure. Uh, we just celebrated the centennial for the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote in the in federal elections at the federal level. And that was the longest sustained 
event of political activism in this nation's history. It, it dwarfs the civil rights movement in terms of time and scope and intensity. But I mean, it's like 100 years. And it resulted in a constitutional amendment, right? And we still see to this day, though, and you're right, there's like, there's no monument to women on the mall. There's no, it's that, we talk about the civil rights movement all the time, but yet we, no one even really, talk, and we've had, we've recorded a podcast on this. We don't think about or talk about that struggle in the same way. But I think both struggles do highlight that it takes a long time. But I want to go back to your the tension between policymaking and between elections and end elections, because in reality, and you mentioned earlier, which I think is an excellent point, in reality, you have to have both. They go hand in hand. And today we're told the kind of presumption is don't do anything crazy in between elections because then we can't win in the election. And that means that we can't then do all this great stuff. But then when you get past the election, and whether you want to balance the budget or you want to pass the Green New Deal, you're like, whoa, all your colleagues said, don't do that. Don't do that. That's going to make it hard for us to win. But then when you really like, we have to win. And the other side's like, if they win, they're going to balance the budget or pass the Green New Deal. And in reality, nothing ever happens. 1958, you have 12 liberal Democratic senators from the North come into the, the United States Senate and they changed everything. And then you had conservatives come in after them and more liberal Democrats come in after them. And they challenged the power of committee chairs. They forced the Congress to operate differently uh, for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. But the point is the voters weren't content with slogans and talking points. It was one thing. Yeah, they would respond to stuff. But then if nothing happened, if the status quo didn't change, then they're going to throw the bums out, even if the bums are in their own party. There is a sense of pressure and a demand for action. Whereas today, it's more of like, yeah, well, the reason why I'm not doing this is because the other side's crazy. And, you know, we may lose a couple of votes and seats over here. So therefore, we're just, we got to wait for the right time. And so but voters seem to have bought that. Right. I, 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 but which which voters? I mean, voters are angry, but they, they don't have choices. Right. Like this is the problem that because the conflicts in the 1960s cut across the parties, Republicans and Democrats could compete over civil rights. Republicans and Democrats are not competing over climate policy right now. If you want the Green New Deal, there's only one party that is going to invest in major transformative change to reduce carbon. The voters of New York's 14th district didn't have a choice until AOZ appeared on the scene. Sure. And if you look at the way that Crowley talked, it was like, oh, Trump this and Trump that, and I'm standing up to Trump and I'm doing this. And it was never about taking action. Right. AOC so, just woke up one day and, and then she's like, I'm going to run for office. And then she automatically, overnight, instantaneously gave voters a choice by that decision. She's an incredible talent. So, so voters should have more choices. This is why I want us to have more political parties, because the Democrats, all they do is complain about how bad the Republicans are. The Republicans, all they do is complain about how bad the Democrats are. And then when they get into power, they say, oh, well, we're going to alienate some mythical moderate swing voters, so we better do a little less. But why are we content with that? Well, I'm not content with it. But people should be in the streets demanding proportional representation and multi-party democracy. Please, please give <laughs> yourself more choices. Yeah, just like I know, I know. Demand more choice. I mean, yeah, I mean, most people, all they do, they, they vote. They are in a 60 percent Republican district, 70 percent Democratic district. You know, I mean, voters in New York, right? I mean, you can vote in the primary, but that's it. Right. So there's no there's no meaningful choices. So if voters are angry, 
they keep re-electing the incumbents because, you know, what are they going to do? Vote for the other party? Ugh. Or vote for a primary challenger. Then we're sure, told that's bad. But... We're told that's bad. I mean, everything. No, is... I'm not told. I'm, 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 I'm not well, no, I'm talking about like the, the the kind of elites, you know. Whatever you know, if you if you if you want to win, you got to support moderates. Except then moderates don't do anything. So, I mean, this is why it's the it, it, it. I mean, voters are angry, but the way our party system operates and the way our election system operates, it means that it's very hard to get change. Everything is stuck. It's brittle. But it's rigid. So, I mean, it's almost nonsensical how in, in absurd this whole thing is. But I want to take issue with one thing. It's not the system, in my opinion. I mean, we've been uh, – Andrew Jackson was running against the corrupt political system. Sure. And Martin Van Buren's parties, all kinds of stuff. The difference is – and this is a remarkable thing. Everybody seems to be upset today, regardless of their political affiliation. So there's a sense of bipartisanship right there. Everybody is unhappy. Everybody has a sense of like they don't have any power. Something's happening to them. People are doing things to them. But we all have agency. If you want to change, like we don't have choices because we refuse to see the choices we have. Does that make sense? I don't want to get too like. I mean, but but we don't have choices. Sure, we can, we can demand of people that you know they have such imagination that they do something. Or, I mean, but most people in politics, they're angry, but like they can only take action. You know, I, I can go to the grocery store and say, you know, I, I'd like nuts and gum together at last. But like, you know, I, I'm sorry. Can you can, what is it like? Is this a new thing? I don't know. Like what's going on? No, no. It's a obscure Simpsons oh. reference. You know, Homer says, ah. Nuts and gum together at last, right? I mean, it sounds <laughs> terrible, but no, I love it. It's great. I was not, I didn't watch a lot of symptoms. All right, well, you should. It's, it holds up. It's still still good. I've been been rewatching a lot of a lot of it. Uh, but the point is that you can dream of things as they ought to be, but until the political system offers opportunities for people to make those choices, you know, I mean, because the parties are entrepreneurial and innovative. It's hard for people to make those to make those choices, right? I mean, politics is about organization, but it's really hard for individual people who are busy with various things in their life to, to organize. So a political system that works is one that gives people enough choices so that they can say, I want to change without having to compromise all of their values. So I think that politics has always been really hard. It's always been hard. And it always takes a lot of effort. And if you think about it, it's like the worst way to make decisions. I guess it's like the Churchill, like, you know, referenced about right. American politics. I mean, it's a lot better to be ruled by some benevolent and wise monarch. Sean, put in a lot of effort. You got to get out there. You got to expose yourself. You have to tell people what you think is important. And then, yes, you may lose and you may they may disagree with you. That's hard. And you got to do it every single day because politics is never ending. But I think the key here is that, again, the system to me isn't the issue because our system has changed and it, the architecture has been relatively uh, similar throughout our history. And we've had great and extraordinary moments in our history where the system has done extraordinarily well. And it's not the system, it's the people in it. And when you see... But why... But then this is what I'm getting at. This is like my... Like I'm, I've waited until the end and I've just, our conversation has helped to like enlighten me. Better be a good payoff here. Because the we all look at the things that make the system work, and we see those things as bad. Political conflict, disagreement, argument, 
fighting, all of these things, right? We are taught and we internalize that they are bad. So therefore we can't, nothing can happen as long as you have AOCs and Ted Cruz's in the, in the Congress, right? You need people who have overlapping views. You have to dial down the rhetoric. You have to, you know, today's moment in time is nothing compared to the 60s. It's nothing compared to the founding. I mean, they, James Madison and the Committee of Safety was literally like, they're like breaking down Anglican priest doors. And go, I think you've got a suspected book in here. And they're going to tar and feather them. Like the idea of dissent and disagreement and debate and argument, all of this stuff, the struggle, that's what produces the great things in our nation's history. And it's when we see the struggle is bad, either because it, because it won't let us win elections or because it's from the other side and we don't like that or whatever else it is, then all of a sudden nothing can happen. I mean, sure, I, I agree. I mean, that's why we've been struggling for 30 minutes here to convince each other. Um, <laughs> we, and we'll keep doing it. Uh, and maybe people will keep listening. But you know, the, the, the problem is the struggle is a one-dimensional tug of war right now, and it needs to be a multi-dimensional tug of war. And we've got to change the political system. And that's that that's where I want to I want people to engage action. You know, if, if you keep going, banging your head against a brick wall, you know, it's not just bang your head in harder to the brick wall. It's find a way around the brick wall or, or knock down the brick wall. So, like, it's not just action. It's action that creates more possibilities. And I think that involves changing the political system. As long as we have the two-party system and nationalized politics sorted by geography, we're just going to keep bumping our heads into the same brick wall and being angrier and dizzier and more mentally deranged by the concussions until we all just kind of go crazy. Well, I love the all action creates new possibilities, right? I think it's you know, some may be good or bad, but this, you just gave me a good idea. And I think we'll, we'll probably stop it here. And when Julia gets back, we should look at instances in American history where great things or big things have happened. And let's say, why? What's going on here? Why did that anger produce this outcome? Whereas today, the same sense of anger produces no outcome or this, or the status quo keeps petering along. That's a good topping, and my hypothesis is... Party system? Well, it's because political elites realized that the, the current status quo was unsustainable, and, and they changed it. But they have to be made to believe that the current status quo is unsustainable. But we'll, we'll revisit this topic again. So, as always, there's more to discuss. Gotta keep them wanting more, James. Julia, I hope you're listening across the pond in France where everybody is not so angry. Or maybe they are. No, they're so angry in France. They're even angrier there. But they got beautiful, beautiful weather in the South, not the North. Well, thank you. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.